So Martin Woodward is the director of developer relations at GitHub, and he will talk about an intriguing concept called inner source. So how to create those open source style communities inside your company. And take it away, Martin. Hey, everybody. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me over your lunch break, and uh, we'll see how this gets on. Feel free to get up, walk around, definitely get some water and stay hydrated. It's very important. So uh, thanks for having me. Um, as I said, my name is Martin Woodward. Um, Martin Woodward at GitHub.com, where you can just, if you want to send abuse to me, feel free. It's at Martin Woodward on Twitter, so uh, it's all good. And say we're just going to have some fun, talk about some of the top five myths that I've seen around this thing called Inner Source. Um, when as I've been working, as I've been sort of rolling it out across a few different organizations, and then some of the ways that you know you sort of get through those myths and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, it'll be a good little way to to pass the lunch break while you're while you're having something to eat and things. Now, what the heck do I mean by inner source? What what on earth is this? Yet another buzzword, you know? Um, inner source is. Just this, the, the concept of sharing knowledge, of skills, of code inside your organization using open source style collaboration. So what do I mean by that? I mean things like um, you know having a permissive read access. So everybody in your organization, inside the organization, has read access to everybody else's source code but very restricted write access, just like with open source, how the people who can approve pull requests are a limited team of people, the maintainers of that library, inside a project as well, inside the organization, having permissive read access, restricted write access, so the community who's maintaining it get to approve the changes that make to it, and really kind of sharing knowledge, sharing best practices, sharing those little SQL scripts that are buried around on the DBA's you know, desktop, because uh, we all know that the, these, these, these smart DBA folks and these smart sort of you know, infrastructure people and SREs, they have tons of little scripts buried away that can do all sorts of magic, but sharing of those and sharing the best practices contained within them amongst the team is, is a great way of doing in a source as well. Um, typically, and what we'll cover is actually is how on earth, like, how does this relate to, to DevOps and the whole, the whole thing why we're here today? So hopefully I'll get that covered as well. Um, because inside organizations that I deal with and also inside a lot of organizations, you know, that are looking at implementing DevOps best practices, um, we see a struggle of communication. And that's fundamentally, you know, what DevOps itself is trying to address in terms of bringing people together, enabling communication, enabling faster iteration, enabling lots quicker testing, you know, and, and, and quicker um, learning from production. Um, and within a, a source, it's a way of breaking down those communication silos inside the organizations. We see typically, you know, in sort of large enterprise organizations, many of which, uh, when I had a real job before I came to work here at GitHub, um, the we see a lot of these kind of monolithic systems. There's little code reuse in those systems. Everyone's kind of got siloed knowledge. And quite often, code ownership is actually kind of follows structural lines with inside the organization. So 
um, I remember having conversations with people, especially when I've been looking to take some code and share it or, you know, reuse some code inside the organization. You have to go like talk to an, a, a VP or a CVP of something because they're the person that owns that code. They are the, uh, you know, they're the owner because it's, cause it's, it's a system that's part of their company. And that's complete nonsense when you think about it. The people who own that code are the shareholders of the company. The, the VP, the team that are currently working on it, are, are just the current maintainers. And that will change over the life cycle of that project. So traditional enterprise culture with this notion of code ownership and this notion of very siloed communication doesn't really reflect the reality of how that code flows over time um, in the life cycle of a system. And we also see quite often in these teams that are you know, beginning their DevOps journey, they are sort of focused on short-term gains and they're not really focused on sharing as a priority for management. So um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of why we think inner source is a good thing. And if you look into sort of more modern engineering practices, um, so people who are heading towards DevOps and heading towards kind of these modern engineering ways of working, we see a lot more innovation from all directions inside the organization. We see this, this culture, it's a term shift left, which gets used a lot in DevOps, you know, doing things sooner in the process. We were just listening to a fantastic talk now about integrating security into your core DevOps practices, you know, and so, you know, some people call that DevSecOps or whatever, but it's, it's making security part of the core process earlier not just slapping it on at the end and doing everything earlier in the process at the, at the most efficient time and as part of the core way that we ship software rather than just, you know, tacking on at the end, throwing it over the wall to a different team, that sort of thing. And we also see in modern engineering teams and high-performing engineering teams uh, a culture of, of sharing, not silos. And we see that represented in the research as well. Um, I'm fantastically privileged to um, work with uh, a wonderful um, woman called Dr. Nicole Forsgren here at GitHub. And she was one of the authors of the um, you know, very, very influential um, State of DevOps report. And in that report, you know, they point out that the, the practices exhibited by these elite DevOps teams are exactly the same kind of practices that the inner source and inner source culture helps organizations kind of lead towards. You know, it's it's this creating of community structures, of communities of best practice inside of the organization, of building these informal networks. And so all inner source is, is just an infrastructure, is just a a way of working, or a, you know, the backbone which allows these communities to form. If you start sharing code, communities won't happen. It's the infrastructure that you put in place to enable these communities to happen, but you still need to encourage, you know, community building and community kind of sharing inside your company. Um, by focusing on the maintainership of code and making sure everybody has a mindset of maintain, they are maintaining the code. They don't own it. They are maintaining it on behalf of the shareholders for 
a limited period of time before they move on to their next project or, you know, until this this part of the project goes from active development into maybe um, sustained support or something like that. Um, by encouraging that mindset, you encourage collaboration as well now because people understand that they are the, the current, uh, you know, their current maintainers. They're the people who currently are looking after this code and their job is to leave this system in a better state than they found it. But they're, you know, encouraging collaboration is what they're trying to do. And then by focusing on this, building an economy of sharing inside the company, you can encourage more, you know, um, modular, like less monolithic systems. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then just to bring in some data from Dora, but also from others, we see that higher performing organizations are twice as likely to have internal communities. So what I'm not saying is, um, there's a you know there's correlation. There's not causation. Uh, if you have internal communities, if you have these internal networks, then you're twice as likely to be in a high performing organization. We see um, for these sorts of companies, we're also seeing 200 times more frequent code uh, code deployments. Eight times more likely to have security baked into their processes, just like we were hearing earlier, and a hundred times faster uh, time to you know dev develop a re environment creation time. So we see these communities, and we see them, and it's kind of a natural side effect um, of, of building some of these practices in. Now, um, I kind of. Um, been working on different inner source rollouts in a few different places. The last place I worked before coming to GitHub was a small sort of cheeky startup in um, the Pacific Northwest called Microsoft. You might have heard of them. Um, not maybe, you know, a few people have. And their infrastructure was... Um, They'd put in, tried to put in culture of sharing as they were going through their, their sort of life cycle. But um, they had lots of sort of steps along that way where they did you know a site called toolbox which was actually a basically it was um a, a website where people would dump their projects and the source code for them and it kind of allowed this discovery of hey here i've got some code you might want what do you think to this kind of thing and that eventually sort of morphed into um a a fork of a website that i used to maintain and look after called uh, codeplex um, which was a kind of a much more, you know, had a few sort of bits of code sharing kind of functionality in there as well as just being able to dump code onto it. Um, that then morphed into adding the ability to um, share their proprietary source control systems, so their, their source control systems that they use in-house, which um, at the time was uh, um, Azure DevOps and Azure Repos. Um, the ability to share that with the entire enterprise was a big first step for them. But what they needed and what they kind of need to get to is a point where you can have um, this notion of a cross, uh, um, the ability to do a fork and a pull request. And the ability to do forks and then pull requests is kind of like a key part of the source workflow and also a, a key part of the inner source workflow because it allows you to go use a library and go work on it in your own, but also send any code back to the thing you're trying to share with. An example of, a, of, an, of an application that was in a source over on that side was actually the um, Xbox Adaptive Controller um, from Microsoft. That started in 2014 from uh, Matt Height, who was a, a Microsoft engineer who made a custom, a custom gaming controller, sort of took that and kind of made it work. 
And then in 2015, uh, when we did a hackathon inside the company in 2015, um, based a version on the Connect controller and tried to make a more accessible controller, and then came back the following year in the hackathon in 2016 and worked with a different team of employees, about eight people this time. And they actually sat down and made this adaptive controller, had some, you know, did some thoughts. And again, this was just all completely in a source, completely like a group of engineers working together on a project during a hackathon, which then has become a fully commercial product from the company and is uh, helping people play games and helping people get the most out of their Xbox controllers and things. Now, as we move on, um, when we went into the, the sort of fork and pull request model, that's where we kind of ad have adopted GitHub more. Um, but one of the key products I like to point out inside of uh, Microsoft that actually um, started out as in a source um, and then has now become actually open source is Visual Studio Code. So Visual Studio Code was originally an inner source component called Monaco, and then that became this massive open source editor now. So yeah, it, and it's a fantastic example because it's kind of like an editor control that lots of people are using. Okay, so um, I'm going to uh, go through now and just kind of do our top five myths of inner source of kind of things I've heard about of well, you know when people have had these problems. So let's do the first myth. So if we get a drum roll, please. I'll make some noises for you. So number five in the top five myths of inner source is that you're going to get free work. The magic code pixies are going to come from, uh, you know, come down and just, I'm going to inner source something and all of a sudden just magically I'll get free work and I won't have to write a team to go collaborate on this code anymore for me. And that's just not true. Like if you inner source something, you still need to pay people to work on it. It's not this magic, you know, free work machine. Um, in fact, if we look at data from, uh, this is actually from uh, Microsoft's internal engineering systems. If we look at the data there, when we look at the number of code changes into a well-established inner source project, and this is across the whole organization, across a company that's you know well-established inner source practices, 90% of the pull requests coming into that project actually originate from the team that are paid to work on that code. Duh, of course, you know, because they're paid to work on it and it's work. And so that's what they do. But, but interestingly... 9% of the changes that come into that code base come from a nearby team. So come from somebody within the, you know, the same org charts, often actually the same building, you know, maybe the same floor above, floor below kind of thing. Um, but they, they come from a nearby team and then only 1% are coming, code coming in is coming in from this magic, you know, different parts of the org bringing in changes because that's not the point. The point of inner source is not to get code changes from everywhere inside the organization into your code base. Um, you can and you do and it helps. But the, the usual point of inner source is to share code in the organization and is to share best practices and allow people to understand how you're working. Um, so what I do very, very often is go to other parts of, of GitHub, for example, and go see how they are doing something. How is the team that looks after billing actually doing things? I had a, 
one of my friends was having a query about sponsors and you know rather than bothering people on support and rather bothering the sponsors team i just went and looked it up figured out how it worked and went and helped that person use this particular part of the system because i could go figure it out myself so i could go answer my own questions i could go figure out how we're using um you know, um, Kubernetes to do our deployments so that then I understand how to use it in my side of the application. I go learn a bunch of other stuff and it kind of helps me find, identify the people who are doing these things and then go hit them up on Slack. I can go join their Slack channels and we can have a discussion and it helps build these communities. It isn't about getting free source code in from everywhere. And if we think about the, I like to think about what I call the contribution funnel. So inside a typical open source project, but also um, inner source projects as well, you have this, this notion of, of how the code comes together. The vast majority of people are just consuming your library, are just coming in, taking the code, and then never coming back. In fact, they never even told you they've taken your code. They've just taken it and they're running with it. 99.9% .9 of the time, and that's 100% fine. That's what this is about. It's about sharing. Um, but of the people that are consuming your library, a small percentage of them will come back and they will actually contribute time to you. They will give you some time back. They'll tell their friend about your library. They'll, they'll contribute some code back to your library. But you've got to remember only people who are consuming your library and your, your application will give you time. And only people who are giving you time will actually get to the point where they're contributing code. And so you need to maximize every part of this funnel and then maximize bringing people onto the next stage of that funnel. So consumption, you need to make it easy for people to understand what this library does, easy to find it, easy to understand it, easy to consume it because only once they're consuming will they give you some time. And so it's a numbers game. So the more people you have consuming it, the more time you will get if you help people come down. And then you need to maximize the number of people that give you time by making it as easy as possible. So how can you contribute? How can you log a bug? How can you help with documentation? How can I get started in giving back? What are the procedures in place? Is there a standard way of doing this inside your company? Do you have standard infrastructure? You know, all that sort of thing. You're more likely to encourage people to contribute time. Of the people who give you a bit of time, you want to be as welcoming as possible to those people because they, only they are the people that are going to contribute any code back to your library, are going to give you a bug fix, are going to give you a new feature, that sort of thing. Only a tiny percentage of them do, but they come from the people who contribute time. So how can you maximize the amount of people and the ease of which people can contribute code? Well, you make sure you document your prerequisites. So how easy is it for you to actually contribute to the, this, this library? How easy is it for me to get started with a development environment? You know, if you can spin up a development environment inside of a container and have it running instantly and then just go run, fantastic. That's the best place to be. But um, if you've got documented prerequisites, if you've got scripts so that people can get set up easily, all of these things you do to help outside contribution also help you inside the team as well. And these are all, you know, if you read things like the Unicorn Project and the Phoenix Project and things, these are all things that, that Gene Kim talks about in terms of helping teams 
get onboarded, helping people inside the organization. And you can see how optimizing for inner source is also helping optimize inside your teams as well and helping optimizing for onboarding of people and all that sort of stuff. So it leads to lots of healthy, good practice behaviors. Um, and then sometimes inside of an organization, but not with every project, you want to get to the point where you can co-maintain a library. So it might be that you're not up for ever having somebody helping maintain this library that doesn't work for a particular CVP of something or other. And that's fine. Like, you know, that still, it doesn't mean InnerSource won't work inside your company, but you should be clear about that with people, you know, and you should kind of set those expectations up front if that's the case. But if you're up for, if you're welcoming of people, if somebody wants to co-maintain, understand they won't unless there's a reason for them to. Um, so, you know, just because they can, just because you'd like them to, doesn't mean there's anything in it for them. So what's in it for them in co-maintaining? Do they have an equal stake in influencing of a project direction, in reviewing code, in, in you know, and all that sort of stuff? Because if they do, then they'll help you drive this library forwards. But if you're not prepared to give up control of co-maintenance, then these people are always going to stay at the contribution of code level. Um, and so it's up to you if you want to do that or not. And again, the same thing, the same pattern doesn't hold for every single project. It depends on what the goals are of the project and what you're trying to do. But if you are trying to invite helpful contributions, you know, make sure that you've got good documentation. Sorry, folks. Inner source doesn't mean you can stop documenting all your code because my code is self-documenting. That's another myth I should have given a number to. Um, that's just not a case. When you do in a source, you need to do better documentation because you're coding for a system that's optimizing for asynchronous collaboration and collaboration that's more geographically distributed. Uh, and so you want the documentation to be inviting. You want it to be welcoming. You want people to come in. You want your code to be well commented so people can actually understand what the heck's going on. And you're not relying on the tribal knowledge that's contained around a particular team room or a particular floor of a building that you are writing down a lot of that information and you're sharing with people. And guess what? This means that it's a lot easier to do remote work as well if you're moving towards kind of inner source style workflows. Um, having good governance around the project. So having kind of, you know, codes of conduct is fine. You know, what, what can we expect in terms of um, when we're talking with you in this project? How's that going to work? Um, making sure that you've got a good test suite, though, is also important because um, and making sure, like, you've got policies enforced so that main is always working you know if you that some when somebody gets their first experience of downloading that code to make a small bug fix they're able to do that easily because main is always working the ci builds are always working the pr verification builds are always working and all of those things being in place really helps encourage contribution and then finally, being open to pull requests being open to collaboration is important if you're not tell people, but being open is an important first step in terms of doing it. Even better, if your team follows the same process that you would like external teams to follow when sending in changes, then that's the best way we found in terms of encouraging contribution in. Um, marking issues. If you've got an issue which is super easy to fix, we just haven't got time for it this sprint, marking it as a good first issue. So this is an issue that somebody could come in and pick up and actually go run with is a, is a great 
practice as well. Because you're kind of saying, yeah, we'll totally accept this as a thing. We just haven't got time to do it right now. So go if you. But if you wanted to do it, if you wanted to send this in, we'll we will definitely merge that pull request. We will make the time to do that. Right. If we just sort of show you some examples, so this is an example of kind of like a readme describing the project's intent, you know, making sure you've got the contribution process documented, making sure that contributors don't need any magic permissions that only the team members have. Make sure this is a kind of an easy thing for people to get hold of. And also, you know, try and keep the code clean, try and keep it approachable. Right then, number four in our top five myths of inner source is, I press the button, uh, gamification. Here is all the time. Let's give people stickers, let's give people badges, and then we'll get more code contribution. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, I work at GitHub, like there's a lot I'll do for a sticker and uh, stickers get you a long way. But putting badges on things and doing gamification is that if that's the level of commitment your organization will get to, is that enough incentive for people inside your organization to share? If the only thing you're going to give them is a is a little badge that says, well done, you've been sharing, but you don't give them, you know, but their boss is never asking them about sharing. Their boss in themselves is never incented to share. Then how much sharing is actually going to happen inside your organization? How can you make sharing, make inner source a core part of the culture of your company. The way to do that is actually to encourage some incentives around uh, collaboration. So um, here's an example of an incentive structure from, you know, again, a company I used to work at, where we take the core incentives of the company, the bonuses, the salary rises, and we make them dependent on sharing. So when you come to your end of year review in engineering, you have to say, you know, what impact you had, but you also have to say, and it has equal measure, what contribution you made to the success of others, and importantly, what contribution you had that was built on the work of others. So you're encouraging both supply and demand of sharing, supply and demand, because you need to build an economy of sharing inside of your company. It, it's no good having all the supply but no demand. So you need to encourage demand by, by forcing people to get their full 100% of their incentives, forcing people to say, what were they? this is the work we've done that's built on the work of others, because now they're going to go look for others to go work with. And it wants, and they're going to pay the tax. They're going to pay the investment that's required to go talk to somebody else who's not on the same floor of your building or the same corporate vice president. They're going to pay that tax because they know they need to do it because this is what my company values and this is what we're being this is what we're being paid on. Um, by doing that, by encouraging the demand of sharing, then you the people who start to share have success because they're now sharing with these people, so that's good. But also by encouraging that demand, you're encouraging an economy of sharing credit, of saying, hey, this team over here are the ones that contributed to this success because you need to, to get your full rewards. But by doing that, you're making sure they get credit and it makes them more visible for doing that thing, makes them more successful. Don't get me wrong, the core fundamental part of every engineer should be achieving the goals, delivering value to the end users of the system that they're building for. That's the whole point of DevOps. 
But by encouraging an incentive model that takes some account of sharing, that is how you can really make a difference and really change the culture. And by imposing that model the whole way up the org chart as well, so even the leaders inside the organization have those same three core pillars of what they have to do um, as part of the, how they build things, then all of a sudden managers will start asking people on teams, hey, are we sharing with such and such? What are we doing? Because they know that their rewards are also based on this. So anyway, it's just a, you know, think about your core incentive structures inside your organization. Are you incentivizing the right things? Right, number three in our top five myths of inner source is, da -da 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 -da. we need to tidy this code up before we publish it. Every single team I've worked with, every single one, as like you come to them, you say, right, we're going to inner source this or maybe even open source it or something. Yeah, great. I'll do that. Just I need to just refactor some stuff. I'm going to scrub the code for all those to do's I never did because they're always there still, you know, decades later. I'm going to fix all these things I've been meaning to fix for 25 years. I'm going to get those fixed. And then I'll share it with people because I don't want people seeing my code because my code sucks because I'm. I'm just, you know, an imposter here. I clearly don't know what I'm doing. Um, completely natural. Everybody feels that way. And you need to understand that every team feels that their, you know, their code is not good enough, that, they're, that they need to clean things up. But let me ask the team this. Is this code word running in production? Is this code delivering value to our business and to our end, end users? If it is, it's good enough to share. It's good enough. There's stuff in there that's good enough to share with people. And you can allow the community around the organization. They can come with you on the journey as you tidy things up and as you improve things. So, you know, especially for InnerSource, you, know, you just have to get over it. And it's one of these kind of emotional jumps that organizations have to do to kind of know that the world doesn't end when I start sharing this way. And know that they don't get random CVPs coming down from a different part of the org and telling them, oh, you didn't, you've got a to-do here that you never did, or you're not using, you know, the gang of four kind of factory pattern in this particular class, or, oh, look at this code, it's spaghetti code. You know, nobody's, nobody does that anyway, because they've got, they're far too busy doing their own jobs. The world doesn't end if you share things. And Encourage that behavior, encourage the sharing, get, allow people to get over it for the first time. And then you'll get to the point where they start to do sharing by default, that um, sharing is just the natural way that they work. Right. Um, number two in the top five myths of inner source, we're, we're, we're sort of coming fast upon the, uh, the, the number one here. But number two is that people think, great, I'm going to do, I'm doing inner source now. They're going to say, fantastic. I'm going to build a team that just does a framework, doesn't do anything that delivers value to our end customers directly. They're just going to work on a component that's only for internal consumption. That is usually a bad idea. And again, this takes us down to why, you know, what DevOps teaches us. DevOps teaches us that having these, these vertical teams that are focused on the flow of value to the end users and that are iterating quickly and that are learning from in production, that are continuously monitoring, that are continuously observing, that these that way of working is the best way of building software. And I truly believe that. And so if you don't have end users 
that are consuming your software and continuously giving you feedback and allowing you to test ideas, seeing what works, what doesn't work, it's too easy to just head off into kind of architecture astronaut land where you're just building stuff and you've got nobody who's consuming it. You're not getting any feedback. And so you just go off in completely the wrong direction. DevOps should be like going for an eye test. It should be making small changes to the system. Have you made the system better or worse? You know, so it's like better or worse, better or worse. And you're constantly making small iterative changes until you end up on the better solution, until you've made the system better. And those, it's the, the, the culmination of all those small incremental changes is what makes it better. If you're just in a framework team, just building a random library so that somebody can consume it, usually you're not getting that rapid feedback. And so don't go do that would be my advice. Have end user people who are working on teams that are working on end user delivered value but have those teams think, what components can we take out and share inside the company? How can we componentize this so that somebody else could consume this and it's not just part of a big monolith? And so by taking those components out for sharing and allowing people to consume them, what you're also encouraging is a more modular, less monolithic way of building systems inside your organization, again, which is net healthy. So it, it helps you as a company build these more componentized systems that are more modular because you're trying to help them be shared. But the team that works on them isn't just incented to go build that one thing. They're incented to be delivering value. So they can't over-focus on that one thing. So it's always fit for purpose. And if you want to make it fit for somebody else's purpose, then you know they can make it shareable and componentized. But quite often that relies on the other team to add the you know, two, 3% of things that make it better that allow them to use it. This is with the example with the Visual Studio Code team, you know, they built the Monaco editor control for their, for what they were building. But that Monaco editor control that they shared internally was also picked up by other teams like the Internet Explorer team, like the Azure DevOps team, you know, different teams around, around the organization that needed an editor control rather than build one from scratch, because turns out editors, you think they're easy, but there's a lot of work in them. Rather than building one from scratch, hey, if we bring this component over here, it's got 90% of the functionality we wanted. It's got another you know, 40% of functionality we didn't necessarily were ever gonna build, but it's cool that it's there and it makes it even more valuable. But then we still need to add 10% of stuff for it to be able to do the thing that we needed it to do. Make that an inner source library. The person, people consume it in, they contribute the things in, usually extension points actually, so that they can then build things on top of the core component that's being shared. But they can add those components into the shared library and then move on. And then before you know it, you have a shared library that's, that's useful for a greater number of people inside the organization. So my last tip, the number one tip in inner source the myth that I hear the most frequently across all companies that I go to speak to is that, yeah, 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 that's great for you, but inner source won't work here. We're special. We're a bank. We're a medical company. We have compliance concerns. We have we build rocket ships for space. We, we can't possibly share things because we're special. That's not how it's done here. It's not how it's ever been done. Never going to work. Sorry. Uh, just what not going to work. And I'll say that inner source can work 
in the vast majority of companies I've worked in. In fact, I think you can work in every company I've worked in. Not always everything you do has to be shared with everybody inside the organization. You know, you can work on shared components and have these shared libraries, but you still can have private projects. It doesn't stop you from having them. But it's about building a culture that defaults to sharing with the whole organization and is very deliberate about the things that it keeps private, either for compliance needs. You know, you don't want in a bank, you don't want the traders to have access to the systems which are looking for fraudulent trading uh, so that they can detect how to like circumvent them. Though, you know, you could argue security by, you know, by um, obscurity is probably not the right thing to do anyway, but, but, uh, you know, the regulators are not going to look favorably on you for doing that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, you need to, you, you need to, you can still keep things private, but have an economy of sharing by default. And some of the largest organizations in the world that I've worked with have actually are doing in a source and are sharing. And they've got some, you know, companies up here, but you've got people like Comcast, you've got, you know, people like Verizon Media, you've got all these companies that are massive companies that you wouldn't necessarily think of as like, you know, D sort of software companies they can do in a source and they can share um obviously right now we're all watching you know this amazing um uh perseverance rover that's just running around on the surface of mars and we're all looking forward to when ingenuity the helicopter is gonna go take off for its um first sort of powered flight on a on a planet powered by open source and using consumer grade electronics basically powered by a couple of arduinos and a raspberry pi zero you know but it's just amazing that all this stuff actually kind of works and can kind of share and people at jpl they saw when then as they're doing in a source and as they're adopting things like github and stuff they're seeing code reuse greater than 90 percent, and this collaboration inside their organization increased 20 times and this is massive and this is a heavily regulated industry you can't just send military grade secrets around the world all the time you know but uh, this is um a very very you know regulated industry and yet code reuse is up there we have again different you know companies like walmart labs and people like that who are doing some great stuff so inner source can work inside your organization you just have to find out how to get it to fit inside your culture and how to make that work and that's that's work okay this is why they call it work it's not easy and you are the best person to help make that happen inside your company so what are the key attributes that you want to look for when you're trying to encourage more in a source and more in a source engineering practices? You want to make sure teams are incentivized and encouraged. Encouraged is the most important thing first. You can take incentivized later. Um, encouraged to share, encouraged to consume. You have this permissive read model. So lots of people inside the organization can read and you get to a point where you default to having a permissive read model but a very restricted write model to source control. You still have the same level of permissions, maybe even greater control over who has write access and um, to the source code, but you have very, very, very permissive read access. You need discoverability of source code inside your organization. If you're going to help people consume, you need them to be able to find that code. So think about how you can improve discoverability. Obviously, if you've got things like GitHub, then that's kind of built in. But if you're not using GitHub, you can use other things as well. You know, you can build an index. You can just build a wiki page where people list them. It doesn't have to be high tech. It doesn't, you know what I mean? You can, you can start simple and then build up uh, as you go along. Good documentation is important. And then using this pull request model 
and having pull requests validated by reliable tests that give people instant feedback, they're all excellent kind of attributes of inner source engineering. Okay, I'm bang on time, so we can have a bit more of a break. So I just wanted to say, uh, you know, thank you very much for listening. Um, again, my email address is martinwoodward at GitHub. And if you want to get hold of me on Twitter, it's at martinwoodward on Twitter. Um, I'm going to head on over to the GitHub booth now. So once you've grabbed a drink and grabbed a bite to eat, come on over to the booth and I'll be there chatting if you want to ask questions. Or if you want to learn more, github.co slash inner source. There's some white papers there you can share with your colleagues. And then finally, the Inner Source Commons is a fantastic um, organization uh, of like-minded people who are all trying to do inner source and all who talk to each other, you know, from the inner source departments of lots of different companies. So it's like like-minded people try to do inner source inside their organizations. We all kind of hang out at the innersourcecommons.org. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I think we're going to head to some uh, break music now so people can get lunch, but thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Martin. We're going to keep you for a few more minutes over here because okay, we have a ton sure. of questions for you. Uh, there's yeah, been yeah, a okay. very lively discussion around owning code and what does actually mean. Mm. And it really made me think about the Philip Potek thing that you don't own the clock, you uh, keep it for the next generation. So. Uh, yeah. The specific question over here was that in many talks you hear about the importance of code ownership for the dev teams. Am I understanding correctly that you are saying that teams should not own code? You don't say so what do we what do we mean by code ownership? Okay, so um, people tend to take that like it is mine. I get to say exactly what everybody should do with it. If you think of being a maintainer of that code base, I think that's a health. I I'm going to say that's a healthier mindset to have, because you are the person that is responsible for that code, that is making sure that code gets better and you leave it in a better place than you found it. But how many times in your career have you taken a project all the way from like research and greenfield development? to building the thing, to maintaining the thing, to, to, to sunsetting it, and then switching the system off. How many times have you ever like done that the entire way for a project that's been successful, I'll say? I've been involved in some projects where I've created them and then thrown them in the bin again, sadly. But there we go, Played far too many that I'd like to admit. It doesn't happen very often. And so you've got to kind of realize that you are just the maintainer of this code at this point in time. How can you make it a better place? But how can you also make sure you leave the organization when you move on to the next project? You have left the organization in a better place. So this going to code is going to outlive your participation in it and is going to keep getting better as you move on. So, yeah, code, it depends how you define code ownership. So I prefer to think of it as code maintainership. Beautiful. So, like, think of yourself as being replaceable. Um, there's another yes. question more on a management level. Any data on a recruitment from contribution funnel back to the maintainer team? Um, yeah, so that is a really interesting question, actually. But that's kind of, it's got two points to it there as well, you know, in terms of when you talk about recruitment. So um, there's recruitment and retention of engineers. And I'm trying to think of some papers. We've I'm trying to think of what papers I can, I'm trying to think of what research is out there that points to this. We definitely see correlation between in high performing teams, people who are building these cultures of sharing and cultures of collaboration 
and employee satisfaction, employee retention. We've directly tested this inside of a lot of engineering systems I've worked on, um, where we ask the developers inside of the teams um, for their satisfaction of our engineering systems. And as we encourage more collaboration and more sharing, we see the satisfaction of the engineering teams rise. You know what the biggest number one driver of engineer satisfaction is? Shipping stuff. The, the quicker you can get stuff into production, there's a direct correlation between the quicker you ship stuff and how happy your engineers are. And I'll tell you what else is a direct correlation between. Sorry, while we're on this point, and then we'll get back to your question. The, the, um, the, there's a direct correlation uh, if you look at the amount of test coverage and the number of defects, number of bugs found in production, there isn't a correlation between those. Once you get above 60%, like it, it doesn't, there's no correlation. However, there is a direct correlation between how complicated the org structure is of your company and the number of bugs in production. So how complicated the org structure is of the people building this code and the number of bugs. It's proven. There are papers on this. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting. Anyway. So recruitment, yes, there is a direct correlation between um, we, the question was about maintainers, you know, recruiting maintainers from the funnel. It, of course, there's a direct, you know, nobody becomes a maintainer without first consuming, without first contributing time and then contributing code. And so that's why you need to bring people down that funnel. And it's a numbers game that only a small percentage come through. So you need to make sure you're maximizing every part of that funnel and maximizing the number of people get, get through that funnel to get to the point where one or two people will ever be a co-maintainer. That's super rare. And you're only going to have that happen by numbers. Inside of a company, you can kind of you can kind of put force things because you've got as well as another dial of how interested people are you've got the other dial of how much you can pay them to be interested you know what i mean so you can that's what you think about in the inside of a company you are maintaining a code base because somebody is essentially you know oftentimes paying you to work on that code base but that doesn't keep you maintaining it because if they're paying you to to do something which you hate you just go leave and go get another job because we're very very lucky and privileged so um yeah so there is a direct correlation but uh it's um it, you got to think about why what's in it for them is is the thing i would say sorry long answer no worries. Uh, I have a kind of a follow-up question from here. It's how yeah. hard it is to share code and hope for good contributions with broken windows everywhere and how to argument for a nice code there. So if you have any tips or tricks for someone who is trying to encourage good code. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I completely get the point. This is what I was pointing to around there. Uh, you know, oftentimes people don't want to share yet because this isn't nice code and there's too many broken windows kind of thing. First of all, the broken windows uh, thing is is a fallacy and it's quite been quite well proven of that. So we'll we'll park that aside and we'll we'll uh, we'll not talk about uh, Mayor Giuliani and all that sort of stuff because there's there's definitely been that's been proven not to be the case. But it you you. By getting out there and then starting to invest in things that are helping your DevOps processes, like CI, like a good test coverage, things that give you the confidence to be able to accept changes from people, um, all those investments, all those things you do that you're wanting to do by coming to this conference anyway and learning about this stuff, these are very, very, very important things which encourage things and then also help. Uh, encourage sharing as well. So you just got to, but you can't just stop work while you pay down technical debt. You know, we've got to be continually delivering value to our end users as we go. And so it's trying to figure out ways 
of paying down a little bit of technical debt this sprint or this iteration while also shipping some value to our customers. Um, and it's our jobs. Like that's what you are paid to do is to leave this code in a better place than you found it. And how can we improve the productivity of our development teams this week so that we'll be able to do more next week while we also keep on shipping something this week? You know, it's a, it's a tricky balance. It's why they call it work. <laughs>